I'm going to invite you to stand, please, for the reading of the word this morning. We're reading from the book of Ezra, a piece of scripture rarely read in church. In fact, Christian churches over the generations that read from the combined lectionary cycle, like our nine o'clock service here, the book of Ezra never makes it in that cycle of reading, year by year by year by year. We're more familiar with Nehemiah, but this is its companion story, the book of Ezra. We're reading from chapter 10 this morning. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of, out of uh, Israel. The people also wept bitterly. Shekaniah, son of Jehel, the descendants of Alam addressed Ezra saying, we have broken faith with our God. We've married foreign women from the people of the land. But even now, there's hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to send away all of our wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Take action, for it is your duty, Ezra, and we are with you. Be strong. Do it. Then Ezra stood up and made the, uh, the leading priests, the Levites, and all of Israel swear that they would do as had been told. And so they swore. The word of God. You can be seated. You're thinking about that word of God, aren't you? particularly uh, the men. Are you trying to decide this morning if you can send away the women and the children before lunch? So here is Ezra doing his ritual wailing. We'll have a funeral here this afternoon and honor Vern Smith, Vern and Carol from the second row crew. But no one this afternoon will really be tearing at their clothes or, or tearing at their hair. The the narrator says it's not that he shaved his head, he's pulling, he's literally pulling his hair out and pulling his beard out. And before it's over, Ezra is crumpled on the floor in the temple. He is crushed with grief. This is Ezra's situation. He lays flat out in the temple by, that's in the morning, but by nighttime, the storyteller says he's laying flat with his palms up towards the heavens and confessing and crying out to God, we are guilty, we brought shame, our sin is great. A grown man laying on the floor, crying in the temple. We've come home. 70 years. We thought it was bad before. We betrayed you, God. You sent us to Babylon. But now we're home and we've betrayed you again. There's, there's no excuse for what we've done. Ezra pours himself out to God. Confession, confession, confession on behalf of the people. The worst kind of sin has happened. What exactly is the problem? They married from the wrong neighborhood. Now what exactly does that mean? They married from the wrong neighborhood. We might want to pause and think again about the challenges for our modern ears to listen to these ancient stories, church family. One young adult, when I told her the passage for worship this week, said child, said to her parent, why would you read that story in church? What is relevant about that story? 
married from the wrong neighborhood. What does that mean? Does that mean the wrong side of the railroad tracks? Does it mean the wrong skin color? Does it mean a different native tongue in the household? What does it mean you married wrong? Does it mean someone from a different faith tradition? You married from the wrong place, the wrong, the wrong circumstance? Or is it simply, you know, you, you married somebody grandma doesn't like? Like, what is it? They married from the wrong neighborhood. Now, there's a few of you this morning. Where are you? Those people who your marriage or your engagement stirred the, stirred the trouble. There's a few of you. Just raise your hand. You got engaged or you got married and it troubled people. Come on, show, me your, show yourselves. There's a few. Uh-huh, Darren and Elizabeth. Uh-huh. You have company. Right? Here's a picture from a couple of years ago. Um, there was one Kirby Oberg. Great quality picture. Sorry for the damage on the photo. There's one troubled couple when we decided we're getting engaged. Is it because our skin is different color? Is it because we speak a different language? I mean, we even both have blonde hair and blue eyes. Come on. We're both from the same faith tradition. How in the world could this innocent looking couple provide any trouble in the neighborhood? What would be the problem? Except that I'm 12. <laughs> he calls my father the night before he proposes and says, so this is what's going to happen tomorrow. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. We're in Walla Walla. It's an extravagant plan. My father says, fine. We call back the next day to let them know, ta-da, we're engaged. And my father says, oh, wait one minute. No, you're not. Did you notice she's like 12? Where are you, people, where your union stirred the neighborhood? What exactly is the trouble in the story here with Ezra and the nation of Israel? Contaminated people? Is that what we're talking about this morning? The wrong neighborhood. Ezra is praying about a 1,000-year-old commandment. Could you please take that picture off the screen? <laughs> Thank you. It's just... Can I get some water or something? <laughs> if you've never heard that story, it's a big story, and we'll do it in another 10 years. <laughs> Ezra's reciting a commandment that's a 1,000 years old. Ezra's remembering a time with Moses and Aaron and crossing over and going through the wilderness and getting ready to cross over the sea. Mo he's remembering this, this commandment that don't defile yourself with the contaminated people. Whatever you do, don't take their daughter's for yourself. Don't give your daughters to them because these people don't know me. They don't know the Yahweh God. They've got their own idols and their own gods and whatever you do, don't mess it up. Ezra remembers that command. This is why he's praying. It's an old story. An old part of their history. So now in the temple, Ezra's got everybody gathered around. Everyone showed up because he told them, you better get here. And while he's still kind of confessing and, and, and pouring out his shame to God, he names what's happened as some of the worst kind of idolatry that could ever happen. Contemporary writers say what he claimed happened was equal to witchcraft or marrying witches, bringing witches into the family. 
In the original language, it's that, it's that abrasive, vile kind of offense. And so now everybody's weeping. I mean, you would be weeping too if Ezra said that about you. Everybody's crying. It's just a big cry session. Everybody's feeling guilty and shame. Everyone, all the nation of Israel gathered with Ezra in the temple, weeping. I also wonder if they're starting to imagine what this will require of them. Wait, are we sending our wives away? Are we sending our children? The children are going to go after this? Where will the children stay? Who would feed the children? Am I sending my children and my partner into slavery? What is happening right now? They must be wondering with Ezra in the temple. We have opened scripture in a rather messy moment today. Captives, prisoners, refugees who've come back to their homeland, and it's like a bad movie in slow motion. They've trickled back in three batches, and so far they've got the temple built, and, and it's kind of inglorious compared to what Solomon put up, and the people are ridiculing them. We're more familiar with that part of the story recorded in Nehemiah. It is in this part of the nation of Israel, returning back to their homeland, coming home to claim what they left, that they can look and see whatever's in front of them is not what's been behind. The future is not the past. Everyone summoned to this assembly. They're given three days to arrive or they will forfeit their property and their land, and so they turn up. Everyone's now surrounding Ezra, and the assembly includes a variety of people. You could think of, we could name them all from our divisions today. There are traditionalists, and there are reformers, and there are descenders, and there are the older ones, and there are the younger ones, and there are the elite, and there are the peasants in the group. They've all turned up. And just for kicks to make the chaos more catastrophic, it's the younger generation that told on the older ones. That little passage that we read, it turns out that Shechaniah, who did the confessing, his father and five of his uncles have all married women from the neighborhood. There's only one solution offered. We don't need any creative thinking, no brainstorming sessions. We don't need to pause and pray and ask for the Holy Spirit. There's a decision that's been made. Ezra chapter 10, verse 4, take action for it's your duty. Ezra is told, be strong. You can do it, Ezra. It's like he's getting this warning. You're about to go down, my friend. <laughs> but come on, you can do it. Remember, this is Ezra telling the story. So we imagine this is how Ezra feels in the moment. Oh, my word, this is really going to happen right now. So it takes them about three months. And they do the questioning. And they take an inventory. And they count all the heads. It's 30,000 men or so in Israel. And 111 of them have violated the regulation. So their women and children will now pay the penalty. Verse 44 of the same chapter says this, all these had married foreign women and they sent them away with their children. It's not a very familiar story. You could have questions if you in fact read this very short book of the writing of Ezra. You might have some of the same questions that I have. It's a complicated family. And by the way, which nation of Israel, because a lot of them went away for 70 years to Babylon, but a lot of them remained. Many of them, the poorer of the poor, maybe from Samaria even, there were some Israelites who remained home. So is Ezra irritated about the ones who stayed home and maybe married the neighbor wives? Or is he worried about the ones who were in Babylon and 
married some women from Babylon, which alliances compromise the community. It's a complicated family, and you notice it's a one-sided risk. We don't seem to be worried about the men who are from the neighborhood, only the women. And why would the children have to be sent away? Oh, because the children could have a claim to the property, right? Start asking the questions, and we see how layered this story it's complicated. Did he investigate if they are actually worshiping other gods or if they even know Yahweh from Israel's nation? Is he worried that it's threatening the stability of the neighborhood? It's complicated. In that prayer, Ezra mentions the loving kindness and the mercy of God. If God is merciful, why not appeal to that? And they've brought all these bulls and rams for offerings. And if God forgives, just bring some more bulls and rams for goodness sakes and get it over with. Why would you have to send the women and the children away? Is it their foreign status alone that's causing the problem? And by the way, did Ezra not know when they were all in Babylon, they got this letter, a word from the prophet Jeremiah. This is what Jeremiah said to all of you who are captive in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives and have sons and daughters and marry and give birth and pray for the peace of your city. Does Ezra not know that the prophet Jeremiah actually told them to settle when they got to Babylon? Did he forget that part of the word from the prophet? Plant, dig, marry, bury, have children. Did Ezra forget that we have people like Moses and Joseph and David and Solomon who took wives from the neighboring community? Did Ezra forget that actually Moses' wife, Zipporah, I think the Bible records that she actually did the circumcision on the child they created together. It was so important to him, to her, to be faithful in Moses' tradition that she circumcises the child. There are some people that say she's so capable, she probably circumcised Moses too. <laughs> she supported his tradition. Where is it written there should be no intermarriage? The answer is actually nowhere. Ezra calls the crowd of people, the crowds out in the land, he calls them the crowds of people in the land, but the women he calls foreigners and he reaches for a different word. It's a word that is used in the book of Exodus for the men who are uncircumcised, the men who are dangerous, the men who threaten their stability, the men who don't know Yahweh yet, the men who are warriors that they need to kill. When Ezra describes the women, he uses that word for foreigners. Ezra has taken a law against marrying idolaters and turned it, turned it into a law against marrying foreigners. Do you hear the difference? He takes a 1,000-year-old law and he kind of twists it a little. The anthropologist Mary Douglas helps us a little bit. She says, you know, the priests were watching all of this happen. There's a fight now about inheritance and there's a fight about the security of their future and there's a fight about economics and what we're doing now is wrestling our fortune. We're going to at least send the women and the children away because that's that many less people we have to care for and now let's see what land is left. She suggests the priests are watching, and when we read the book of Leviticus, most of us don't. 
And the book of Numbers, not a big thrill either. She says, when we read the book of Leviticus and Numbers, we should remember this story with Ezra because the priests were watching and a little bit of editing and shaping was done in response to what Ezra did to the people. Turns out, you can't push people out of the story. Turns out, in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, they will write in laws to protect all kinds of people. You can think they're impure, but you're still going to have to feed them and take care of them. You can think they actually don't belong, but there will be laws that require they get to harvest off of your land, and no one can be sent out of God's story. Turns out the priests were watching. Here's one of the examples, Deuteronomy 21. When you go out to war against your enemies and you take them captive, suppose you see among the captives a what? A beautiful woman. You want her, you want to marry her, and so you bring her to your house. You'll shave your head, you will shave her head, pare her nails, discard the captive's guard. Remain in your house for a full month. There's a whole ritual for how to do this. Mourn for her father and her mother. And after that, you may go with her and she may, you may be her husband and she will be your wife. But if you're dissatisfied with her, you will not let her go free. You shall let her go free, but you cannot sell her for money and you cannot treat her like a slave since you've dishonored her. What is Ezra doing in the story? It's curious if the priests are pushing back as they're editing the material and the Bible is compiled. What is Ezra doing? It's not marriage advice. It's not divorce advice. It's about perceived community corruption. Or I would suggest it's about radical trust of the divine. There are messy moments in the story, friends. We have choices when we get into these messy moments. Thank you, Friedbert, for recommending I study this passage. I had no idea what I would find here a few weeks ago when we were talking. Here's a messy, messy moment. We get to these moments and we rant and we rave and we protest and we scream and we pull our hair out and when we're all done crying in our ginger beer, what are we supposed to do with these messy moments, friends? Some of us hide out, and some of us check out, and some of us peace out, and some of us ignore, and some of us put our head in the ground. But the truth is, messy moments need witnesses. Someone in the community has to bear witness. When we realize these messy moments are happening, it calls our best selves forward. We'll never know why Ezra made this decision. Whatever's happening inside of him, whatever he's working out with God, whatever he's working out on God, whatever's coming up from his own trauma. Last week, we talked about intergenerational trauma, unprocessed, right? Whatever Ezra's working on, we will never, ever know. Something is going on because leaders are human too. Sometimes you read these stories and you're saying, but where's our Martin Luther? We just need a Martin Luther right now. Martin Luther would stand up to Ezra, pound his foot or some nails or whatever, and say some things. And you know how people like Martin Luther are saints when they're dead, but they're troublemakers when they're alive. What if I'm looking at the Martin Luther's church? 
Martin Luther's don't live in ivory towers. Martin Luther's work it out in real life. What if I'm looking at the Martin Luther's this morning? Can you simply say no when these things happen? Last week as I was getting ready to come up here to give a word, passage from Matthew 5, chapter 48, it's been on my mind all week. Just before I came up these back stairs, my phone goes off and it's another child. She sends me this video. While I'm in church, she sends me this video. If you ooh and awe over these dogs, we are not friends. Stop now. Oh, Mama, Mama, look. The text message says, Mama, look, they're only eight and ten years old. They're at the Humane Society. Look at, they're so sweet, Mama. They just need a home. Look at, if somebody doesn't adopt them, they're going to put them down, Mama. You and Dad love Cocker Spaniels, Mama. Look, one's eye got hit out. This just, one of the dog's names is Happy. I mean, who wouldn't love a dog named Happy? The message just, just kept coming and coming. I'm like, no, 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 no. Come on, just come over and look at them. She volunteers early on Sabbath morning at the Humane Society in her neighborhood, taking care of these pets, right? No, very easy to say no. My word. And then on Tuesday, here's the picture that comes to my phone. Look, Mama. Oh, they're so cute. Look at them. They even matchy-matchy. Oh, they're so cute, Mama. I just got them out from under the basement next door. Don't you want a kitty? No. But look at them. She's community fostering them for three weeks, feeding them with a syringe. She tells me last night, I had no time this week. You think why? You're feeding babies all week long. No, I don't want a kitty. They have to grow a few more weeks, and then they get to be adopted, right, into the community. Come on, please, Mama. No. Some no's are really easy. Am I telling the truth, church? Some no's are really easy. And then we get to these moments in our community. We get to these moments where we need some holy troublemakers, these messy moments where people need to stand up and witness what's happening and say a word. They're simple people like you and me. We don't need the experts anymore. We simply need people who know God's story and know how to say the word no. Because look what happens here. While Ezra is gathering everyone and they're counting out 111 men who've apparently broken the rules, two men, verse 15, only Jonathan, the son of, these names are great, S-I-L, and Jehesaha, son of Tikva. I mean, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'm going to say that's pretty good. Only Jonathan and Yehesa, only these two opposed. And then there are two men who supported them. There are 111 men who say, oh, okay, Ezra, we'll send all the women and the children away. And there are four men who stand up and say, actually, 
No. And that's the end of the story. There's no drama. There's no counsel. There's no calling people forward. There's no speeches. There's no protesting. There's no letter writing. There's nothing else but no. And the children that belonged to those families and the spouses from those families remained. Sometimes to tell a better story, to tell God's story, we have to see it and say it. Sometimes to tell a better story, to tell God's story, we have to remember all of it. And remember, we can't write anyone out of God's story. We have to remember, we can't even write out our experiences with these people we didn't think belonged because they changed us. While they were here, we became different people on the way home from exile. No is actually a word. And this story is over, and Ezra is gone. And some people wonder, some people wonder, did it work? There's one theory that actually the wealthy people, the people from the court, the Persian court and the government actually stepped forward and said, um, no, we don't know who that guy is, but we're not going to send our women away either. Some people wonder because the story with Ezra simply falls off. Turns out in 2020, there is something from these ancient stories, Protestant Christians. Tell the better story. Amen.